Welcome back to another episode of the Talking Balls podcast. Today, I'm joined by commentary legend Clive Tiltley. Clive, how are you? Um, as good as can be, yeah, better than probably most. I've realised that I'm very lucky still to be going to football, um, still to be working, uh, let alone working in my uh, dream job. So it's different and at times it's a little bit more difficult. But I'm very pr- appreciative of uh, of the fact that um, my circumstances are an awful lot uh, better than most people's at the moment. Of course, I think no one foresaw the circumstances we find ourselves in, especially um, the circumstances you find yourself in, in terms of going to an empty stadium without fans. Um, I don't think that's something that you anyone would have envisaged. But um, what was it that initially drew you towards a career commentary? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, and I'm not sure that I've got an answer because it was about 400 years ago. Um, it was just what I always wanted to do. And, you know, my parents would, would, would tell you the same, uh, that from my early teens, certainly maybe even before, um, perhaps a reflection on my sporting prowess <laughs> that uh, that my sporting ambitions were always more towards broadcasting rather than um you know winning the us masters or uh, lifting the um, champions league european cup so um i guess a lot of um my early i don't like the word hero really or idol because it's not that kind of relationship but um you know, the people that I had uh, felt an, an affinity with and, and, and could almost identify with my sort of hopes and aspirations were broadcasters. Um, you know, the great commentators that of my youth. Um, and um, I'm still um, in awe of them. Some, many of them I'm sadly not with us anymore. Um, my main mentor in my career, Reg Gutteridge, who was a boxing commentator, not with us anymore. The man that I succeeded at ITV, who um, was um, very, very kind to me, Brian Moore, not with us anymore. Probably my favourite sports commentator of all, a guy called Pat Summerall, who was um, an NFL commentator in the States, uh, not with us anymore. But their their voices are, and um, you, you can... Um, if I'm trying to um, explain to a, a media undergraduate or to a young wannabe broadcaster what I consider to be good broadcasting, I can always direct them towards um, tapes of, of these guys in action. And um, so their, their legacy is, is what I guess fired my ambitions and inspires me to this day. And I do sometimes still um, find my favourite search engine, find a bit of Summerall just to remind me how good he was and why. And when did you start to realise that you, that you had a talent as a commentator? Because I suppose it's not like football in the sense that when you're younger, you get better through experience. It's in commentating to get into that as a career from such a young age is not something that you do directly with first-hand experience naturally well um there's a there were a few things that you said there um which kind of um are worthy of a bit of analysis talent is it a talent Mm, maybe (laughs) um uh am i any good um that's a matter of opinion um Fortunately, uh, the very fact that I'm in a job and still in a job suggests that there are more people that think I can do it than think that I'm totally hopeless. Um, I hope that you do improve with experience, although, again, the question of whether you've improved or not is a matter of opinion. Um, Certainly from my own point of view, I feel that um, I have um, developed as a commentator during uh, the course of my career. And um, I think the um, the, the, the most um, rewarding or most helpful element of that 
is is listening, is listening to other commentators, listening to your own work back and analyzing it. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully um, learning specifics, uh, you know, detail uh, that you can improve on and also getting an overview of what broadcasting and communication is about. And um, uh, it is a, it is part of a wider field. I mean, you know, commentate, football commentary is what it is. It's not important in a sense that we don't save anybody's life, but it is, you know, it is part of a um, a, a greater sphere, which is journalism, which is um, uh, information provision, um, uh, you know, which is guidance. So you you, you should take the risk, even though you, in a sense of football match isn't that important, you should take the responsibilities of communication um, seriously. And, um, and I try to do that. And that's how I try to improve by listening and learning all the time. As someone that's very passionate about the next generation of broadcast journalism, what do you feel are the key con the key attributes that a commentator must possess? I think that a commentator is first and foremost a communicator, uh, a journalist, and um, even though um, somebody who is commenting on the political scene at the moment, certainly somebody who is commenting um, on a, um, a situation in Hong Kong or Nigeria or somewhere where there is conflict and danger to life, their, their jobs carry far more of a weight of responsibility, far um, more significance than anything that a sports commentator does. But I do believe that the principles are essentially the same, that we um, are given an assignment, in this case of football commentary, that we do as much research as we can to know more about the background and the context of that match, that occasion, that conflict, as we can, so that we're informed, hopefully um, sufficiently informed to weigh opposing views and 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 find uh, an editorial balance that we can present then to the listeners and viewers and then we have um, to learn the actual art of communication the delivery how best to use this wonderful language that we have um, at our disposal uh, how best to relate to a diverse audience uh, diverse in in so many ways, not you know just gender and 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 age, but in background and and knowledge. You know what what they know about football, as opposed to you know, somebody who's you know catching maybe one of five or six games that they see in the course of a year. And you've got to try to be inclusive and speak to all of those people, make them understand. And again, that's really really important at the moment if you're a political analyst because we do assume far too much knowledge um, about things like Brexit, about, I mean, the whole coronavirus is full of unknowns to, to, the, to the, you know, the leading scientists in the world is full of unknowns. So when you're dealing with all of that, um, there is a responsibility on you as a communicator, which goes beyond just getting a click or making a headline or, you know, finding some flowery words or, um, uh, you, I mean, again, it's different if you're working in radio TV because TV lead is led by the pictures, by the by the visuals. So, again, your your role is defined by how you're communicating, what platform, um, you know, media is changing by the day. The consumption of media, the provision of media is, uh, is changing by the day. So, um, as a commentator, uh, even though what you uh, what you are doing for a couple of hours is not going to save anybody's life or change anybody's life, you know, markedly. It might make them miserable or happy for a for a little while. I think that the responsibilities are as serious as they are for any journalist, and that, and and therefore, as I say, the preparation, the consideration, um, the delivery, uh, and the reflection, listening to it back, seeing how you could have been better. Um, they're all, you know, if if this is what you do for a living and it is what I do for a living, then 
and it's what you want to do for a living, what you're aspiring to do when you um, when you graduate, you've got to take it seriously. I mean, not got to walk around with a terribly stern face and full of your own importance all the time. Um, you know, you've got to find your um, your you know your context, your um, uh, your perspective. You've got to have some perspective as to to how important what you're doing really is, and and deliver it accordingly. But it's got to be important to you. You know, this is you know this is not just any kind of career course that you're looking to follow. This has got to come from your heart. Something presumably it's kind of vocational, something you really really want to do. So if you've got the opportunity and you have got the opportunity, you've got this far, you owe it to yourself and to the great power of communication to be as serious about it as you possibly can. And um, and as I say, this is, it all sounds a little bit grim and um, uh, uh, it may be full of its own importance, me talking about a football commentary in these ways, but it's to me. And, uh, and, you know, if I feel as if I've done a poor job, I, yeah, everybody around me knows about it. <laughs> when, when as a commentator, when you're watching a game, when a young player breaks through and scores the winner, for um, the best example that comes to mind, of course, your famous line, of course, Wayne Rooney's goal against Everton, you know, for Everton against Arsenal, I should say. How difficult is it? to differentiate from that player being the story of that particular match and then being lauded as the next big thing in the media? Well, um, Wayne Rooney's goal was a little while ago, and I think if it had been scored this weekend, um, it would be treated a little differently than um, than it was then. I mean, it was big news then, and he was a shooting star, and he was all over the newspapers and all over TV, and anybody who'd ever met him was being interviewed to try to find his his background. But the scrutiny on anybody in the spotlight today is is different to, to what it was um, at the start of Wayne's career. Um, and again, you, you know, you with the privilege really of being the voice associated with that moment, I've got to try to find its context and. Um, you know, the context of that game, of that moment, was a record-breaking goal. At the time, the youngest Premier League scorer. Um, and obviously, you had that information at hand just in case. He was only a substitute on the day, but just in case he comes on and scores. Just um, yesterday, I commentated on a game which Jermaine Defoe scored his 300th uh, um, club goal. And, you know, I've had that information I've been waiting for, he's been waiting on 299 for a couple of months. So that information has been there. And obviously it might, he might've scored it like on Thursday in Belgium when I wasn't commentating. So all of that research is sort of, but, but as it happened, you know, I had the information, I had the, the, the background of when he scored his first goal, to put it in some context over 20 years ago, who he was playing with when he scored his first goal and so on and so forth. So you, you, you're giving that some context, you're giving the record some context. It's not just, um, a stat as such. Um, but when Wayne scored that goal, what's interesting about it were, were two things kind of overrode the record. Um, I, you know, I had I had the, the facts and figures ready um, in case he scored. But at that moment, I had to make a judgment. What's the most important thing to shout out? Oh, there's the youngest Premier League goal scorer. No, no. The most important thing was that it was a goal of beauty it was just a wonderful wonderful goal um and to be scored by somebody who um you know wasn't even old enough to take a driving uh, have a driving lesson at the time um it, it, again it, it, you're trying to find some context um i guess you're you're speaking to every other 16 year old that's watching or every parent of a 16 year old and just trying to you know, this guy's 16 you know, and look what he's just done. Um, and so it's a wonderful, wonderful goal. And I don't know what I said, but it was something to, to that uh, um, effect. And then, of course, the most important thing about it was that it was in the 89th minute. Uh, it, it was it had put Everton in front. It was probably the winning goal. And Arsenal hadn't lost for the best part of a year. And it was past the England goalkeeper. So... The very fact, this stat, which I had up my sleeve and on my notes, 
was kind of getting pushed down the running order all the time because I'm editorializing on the spot. And my mind is telling me, and I think I got it right at the time, that um, the most important thing here is the wonder of the goal. The second most important thing is that it's probably a winning goal uh, against a team that doesn't lose. <laughs> and then the third thing, almost as an aside, oh, by the way, he's also the youngest Premier League goal scorer. So, um, <clears throat> you know, that kind of editorialising is is important. And I, I think that that's kind of what I think our job is. And so um, I do think a goal of wonder deserves something better than oh incredible unbelievable fantastic i i think it, it you do particularly if you're on television and you have the luxury of being able to let the pictures tell a little bit of the story and give yourself some thinking time i think you have to come up with some it it, it there's there's an audacity about this goal that the, there's a cheek about it a 16 year old trying to take you know take it over the goalkeeper the england goalkeeper so you've got to try and find the words that reflect that better than just incredible, unbelievable, then you've got to find something which captures, uh, the, you know, the, the the wonder of this virtual unknown. And I, I, I came up with a line at the time, and remember the name, Wayne Rooney. Thank goodness he wasn't a dud, that he went, actually went on to have a career, otherwise it would have been a pretty rubbish line if that was the only goal he ever scored. Um, and then, as I say, finally, because you've got that time and, and you know, nobody's going to come and take the microphone off you at any stage, you can wait to deliver the information that um, is, by the way, as, as a statistical aside, you've just seen um, uh, the youngest man ever to score in the Premier League score a goal. So, yeah, it's a, it's a real process. In recent years, there's a common consensus that football's leaning slightly more towards the armchair fan than the average match day game fan, obviously before the pandemic. How big an impact do you feel the media have had on modern football? Um, it's... Um... It's difficult to assess the um, impact that we that work in the media have on the way the game is is played and watched, um, particularly at this at this time. But I think it's important that we continually analyse that because we do have a responsibility, particularly at the moment, as the as as kind of the only people. That, I, I I sometimes when I'm talking to to undergraduates, I. I talk about Pheidippides as being the first journalist. Pheidippides was the guy that ran back from the Battle of Marathon to Athens to tell the, the people of Athens who had won. And in a sense, that's what we do. We, we get this special pass to be able to go into a stadium that nobody else can go into at the moment and come out and, and tell everybody who, who are locked out of that stadium what happened, who won. It's obviously... Um, a little bit more uh, complex and scientific than that in in, uh, in the 21st century than it was back in Pheidippides' time. But that that's kind of what we're challenged to do. To, you know, the the um, the clue is in commentary. We're commenting. We're not. We're obviously part of as a radio commentator. You're having to describe to a, essentially to a blind audience what is happening, rather in that basic way that Pheidippides did, who just scored. Um, but in television, you're, you're hoping to add and amplify to to what people can already see. Now, um, it's interesting sort of fast forward into the 21st century and the analysis and scrutiny now, not only of football, but of the coverage of football, that we arrive at a situation where, for instance, in the last couple of months, there's been a, a report on racial stereotyping in in commentary, and I, I you know, I've been aware of of, of this as a, a an ongoing narrative for for some years, um, and I think I, I hopefully I've been mindful of the dangers um, of of falling into sort of lazy stereotypes um, about all kinds of people. I mean, and not just the colour of the skin. We we have this thing about redheads being hotheads and stuff. I mean, it, it it that sounds trivial compared to the racial thing, and it is. 
but it, it is it's an indication of how easily we sort of categorize people and uh, and uh, f football has a way of, of, of almost rather like a, a a library placing people on a certain shelf you know it that it, 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 it's strange when you hear people managers and coaches assessing footballers they'll say uh he or she is really really quick really really uh strong but and then so that they almost have a tick list and uh, you know, it's like a pros and, uh, and cons as to whether this is a play that you would try to sign or try to select but we do allocate qualities to certain people um in, in order to try to build up almost a photo kit picture of them and as the people watching on and commenting and communicating what what we're seeing to a wider audience we have to keep asking ourselves whether we, whether we're just kind of following a lead of, of of what of a perception about somebody or a game or the way a team plays you know the way Roy Hodgson sets a team up the way Steve Bruce sets a team up or whether in actual fact if we look a little bit more closely which we should be doing all the time and analyzing and editorializing the truth's not quite that simple that the um that, that there might be um uh, more variety more depth to to a, a, a particular individual's qualities or to a particular um manager's approach to the game so um i think it is um i think i think that we can influence people's thinking and i think we have to take that responsibility on board probably more so the likes of Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher and Ian Wright and so on, they, the, the guys who played the game and, 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 um, uh, and uh, you know, Alex Scott and, and, and have sort of been down there on the battleground and, and can come back and tell the rest of us what it's like. Um, you know, they probably have a greater influence on how people think about footballers and, and, and football teams, but just the, 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 the commentators can, you know, certainly we have. There's a power that goes with that live microphone that um, I think we have to uh, acknowledge. And so, you know, when you widen that media influence to, you know, the import of of um, print journalists, mainly now read online rather than um, when the newspaper you get your hands dirty. But you know, people like Martin Samuel and Henry Winter and stuff do have a uh, an impact. They have huge followings on social media and so on. So they are spokespeople um, for for the game. Um, and then you widen it still to social media, and um, you know, look at the impact that Marcus Rashford's having at the moment through doing something which is non-football related, but but using his football fame to promote something that he believes uh, passionately in and engaging on Twitter, you know, but he, he's out there today challenging um, a view that he had a conversation with Boris Johnson. You know, he's actually challenging the health secretary about the truth of something at the moment on Twitter. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> you know, from the simple start of answering this question about the impact that the media can have on the way that football is consumed and watched and discussed, um, it, you, it, it broadens out to this sort of extraordinary labyrinth, this um, um, this kind of monster that we've created of, of discussion around the game. Um, quite a lot of it unedited, uh, quite a lot of it ungovernable. Um, um, and as communicators, we've got to try to pick through the, the minefield, pick out the parts that we feel are important and relevant to understanding and analyzing. And that will be your responsibility, you know, when you when you leave university and go out into the the big wide world in which I um, work, to 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 have that breadth of of mind and consideration to editorialize, cut through all the rubbish and all the screaming and the shouting and the white noise and find what's important about a match, a story, an issue um, from both sides and then relate it to people in a way that they um, can discuss it. I I hear the word conversation used quite a lot at the moment, the conversation, the conversation about 
everything from whether Jack Greeley should be in the England starting 11 to um, uh, the, the you know, bigger issues of discrimination um, against people of colour or people of gender within football. It's very, very important to me that we keep that conversation channel open. I do fear, and this is the responsibility that I'm going to charge you with as a as a as a future communicator. Um, I do fear that sometimes the white noise is so loud around a particular issue that it closes down the conversation. That people who have questions, people who have doubts, people who haven't quite made their mind up. Uh, people who want more information, more enlightenment, more to hear about more experiences so that they can arrive at a view on something important. Uh, and it's important to Jack Grealish, you know, whether he is in the England team or not, but obviously bigger issues too, that that is closed, that that that, that process is shut down by judgmental people who shout so loudly and are so certain of their position at a time of huge uncertainty for us all, that they actually closed down the conversation, that nobody dare ask, mm, do you think he runs back as as as, as much as Sterling or Rashford? Um, I mean, if you want Grealish in the team, where are you going to play him that you can still play Kane and Sterling and Rashford? and Sancho and Mount and, you know, anybody. It's almost like nobody dare ask the questions because Jack is the moment and anything that's pro-Jack is out there and you've got to get behind it. And if you, you know, if you if you take that analogy and, and apply it to the really important issues out there, both in football and, and in the wider world, are we having those open conversations that people talk about in a way that you know that we can um, raise our doubts, ask our questions, speak what's in our mind, use the language that comes to mind without fear of being knocked down for an inappropriate use of you know just a, a sound that comes out of our mouth. You as the future communicators have got to try to provide a stage where people can feel confident to have those conversations so that we can get closer to the um, um, to the center of these issues and hopefully find resolutions that we can all agree on rather than having um, you know um, edicts imposed up upon us by um, the loudest voices and that's yeah, you, you need you're going to need a little bit of courage in order to do that. Um, but um, I think it's a very, very important part of future communication. Now that we've created this massive labyrinth of uh, of uh, of you know conflicting voices and sounds coming from all areas, some of them without any real authority or without any um, credential, but you know a a, a tweet from somebody who would absolutely know might be a bot gets reported on radio a view of Jack Grealish gets reported on radio without any substantiation at all and it carries this it gets the same amount of airtime and pretty much the same weight as the view of you know I don't know Dean Smith or Gareth Southgate that's not ed that's editorially nonsensical and yet that's kind of where we are. Just you know, let's get some views out there. Let's hear what you've got to say. And yeah, who are, who are you? Have you actually considered this before you give your view? Um, you, it, it's very important, I think, in, in journalism and communication to actually challenge people, uh, challenge opinion um, formers and makers as to where that opinion comes from. And um, and how much weight that it truly carries. Um, and that's uh, that's a job that you'll find more and more difficult to think with the passing of time. You spoke a lot about the conversations. Do you feel that for a while there's not been these conversations on stigmas within football like mental health or racism, discrimination? Do you think that due to the lack of conversations now, we're sort of looking for one divine answer, one 
way to solve it when actually things like mental health issues, racism, discrimination, sexism, homophobia is such complex it's such a complex matter that maybe conversations aren't enough. Um, well, conversations are not in themselves enough. Um, it, uh, if if something is wrong, it needs fixing. And um, if if there is injustice in any uh, area of life, then it needs action to try to put it right. And um, you know there are certain injustices and unfairnesses. Um, within football that um, uh, are actually a lot of them reflections of society, but um, they are um, football's responsibility and football needs to tackle them. And we need to do it, but we need to do it with the unity. There is a wonderful communion about football, you know, I alluded to earlier, and um, we need to use that communion that, um, to work together um, in order to try to find solutions. But I do think that knowledge and education are are the key to all of these things and um, as I um, you know I've, I've covered a little bit of this in my previous answer it's not about who shouts the loudest it's about who talks with the most authority and experience and we have to listen to people's experience I think mental health is a a, um, a, a fascinating area we we talk about it as if it's or we sometimes talk about it I've got, you've got to pick your words very carefully um, um, in order to, you know, represent your, your thoughts accurately. And we sometimes talk about it as if it's measles, as if it's just a, um, an identifiable condition. Um, we know what the symptoms are. Uh, we know how it evidences itself. We know what the dangers are and we know how to treat it. I mean, mental health is, I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't even start um, try to list the number of different conditions which are covered on this umbrella of mental health. Um, I would probably tell you that I have never had mental health issues in my life, but an expert would probably be able to sit down with me and within 15 minutes find experiences in, in my life, moments in my life that I've had difficulty with and have evidenced themselves in some kind of um, mental health issue. Um, and and until you can have that kind of open conversation with somebody um, who who has more experience and more knowledge in the in the area in the field than than you have, um, it, it it you know it may take a while even to shake an admission out of somebody that they've struggled with something, and we'd see you know the benefits sometimes of of somebody of uh, with some kind of um, public status or um, familiarity com out, coming out and, and discussing a difficulty that they've had in their life, which other people can then identify with. And the, you, you get a certain comfort from, you know, having a shared experience, particularly with somebody that you look up to or somebody that you admire for what they've done in football or something. And it, it, it but it, again, all of this is opening up the conversation rather than um, you know, if if the the danger I always think is dismissing uh, a contrary view to your own as ignorance, and it is that judgmental certainty that so many people seem to have about different things now, which is shutting down the conversation. So that if I am uncertain that about you know something which has happened to me and has upset me um and identifying it as a mental health issue that i can then explore with other people and share my experience if if i just feel within my mind ah, better if i keep quiet i'm okay you know I, I it happened a long time ago um i don't want to put myself out there and open myself up i might be made to look foolish or i might might be made um to look like uh, um, an ignorant bigot of some kind, then so you shut up rather than actually ask a question and um, and offer your own experience to the debate, to the conversation. You pass by it, to use the old biblical analogy, you pass by on the other side of the road. And um, 
again, as, as communicators, somehow we've got to encourage all views and we can't. Um, we can't just dismiss somebody who says something that we disagree with as ignorance. We, we've got to listen to their questions because they might a make us think about their point of view and change our own point of view. Or secondly, we might better help them. You know, we might be able to persuade them to, to our point of view, but you can't enforce that uh, an opinion on somebody. You, you, you've got to take people with you so that if you've got a crusade, whatever it may be, you've got to take people with you. You, you can't leave people behind just muttering under their breath or behind their hands about where you're going. Um, I've, I've written a book this year, which is coming out next year, and, and, and I talk a little bit about, you know, this issue. And I, 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 I've come up with my own phrase I, I, that I think you create creed envy. And if 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 something is really important to somebody in their life and and they want to talk about it and campaign and, you know, make an impact in that area. That there is just a danger that other people watching on think, yeah, well, I've got this that I'm concerned about, but I don't shout out about it all the time. It, you know, you, that that may be the most important thing to you in your life. But actually, you know, I've got a whatever, a father with dementia or I've got a, um, uh, um, you, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm aware of some uh, neighbours down the, the road who've got a, a problem with, you know, something that it, it, you, you can't impose your perspective of life on me because I, yeah, I understand why you're upset about that, whatever it is, but I've got stuff that I'm upset about too. And so rather than engaging with them and their issue, uh, and, and may, maybe even trying to let get them to see your issue, so that the two things can move forward, you kind of shut up and start to mutter about them behind the back and you lose interest in their issue. And that's, you know, that again comes back to the kind of media that is, is, is dictating too much of, of, of the agenda, I think, at the, at the moment. I mean, the, there is a real danger in, of, of, of raising your head above the parapet because, um, you know, if you've got an opinion on something, uh, if um, if you don't carry all with you, <laughs> um, it, it can land, you know, it can land you in serious difficulties. Um, I mean, uh, I, I'm not quite I, I've had some communication with Guy Mowbray in the in the last 24 hours. Um, I'm not quite sure what he's being accused of, but he's out there. and I know it's affecting him. Um, I know he's upset by it and worried by it and the publicity that he's not sought but is getting. Um, it and and I, I actually think that most people will take a step back from this, look at the story that's out there and think, what's that about? Don't understand that. But instead of crusading and campaigning for people to lay off him, they just stay silent. And so he's left to deal with it himself. And um, you know, it's happened to me a couple of times. It's happened to me in in the last couple of months over something in a broadcast. So, um, it, I, as, as I say, I think we have to be wary of this. Uh, of the when we express our views on something and start to um, nail our our flag to a particular crusade that we don't leave others behind and create this, what I call creed envy. As someone who has had the privilege of being able to attend live sporting events during lockdown, um, how would you say football is different, aside from the obvious crowd? How big an impact do you feel that the crowd does play at football? And what do you make of fans not being allowed in to stadiums? Well, I'm... I'm I hear um, the arguments 
uh, from a, a number of my colleagues that if, if people can gather in cinemas and theatres, why can't they gather in, in an open-air football stadium? If people can gather in certain open-air football stadiums, why can't they gather in others? And um, I, 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 commentators tend to have a fairly logical mind. And, um, you know, I can see the, the logic in, in that argument. I'm sure it's quite a strong argument um, because um, I can't envisage why anybody in government or any kind of authority would want to push back against encouraging people to go to enjoy mass events at a time of all kinds of challenges for everybody. Um, but there must be reasons and the, and I guess there must be scientific dangers of um, large gatherings of uh, you know people at, at, at sporting occasions and um, we, we continually hear the phrase we should follow the science but when the science is conflicting <laughs> then uh, we you know which 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 part of the science do we follow um, I'm not in a position to offer an informed opinion as to whether this is the right time to admit fans back into Premier League grounds and to um, Wembley through England internationals. So I don't offer an opinion. Um, others in, in my business do. Um, and I guess if you get asked for an opinion, it's difficult not, it, it, you know, if, if you're Ian Wright seeing in a football uh, um, television football studio and Mark Pugach asked you, you know, do you think the fans should be allowed back into Wembley? Um, you're kind of not paid to say, I'm sorry, I don't know, Mark. What's the next question? You, you, you're kind of expected to have some opinion and view. Um, uh, but I do think that at the moment, I don't know, is it's probably the best answer to an awful lot of questions out there. Um, so um, it, football without its public um, is nothing like the same. It's not just that, you know, people kind of refer to the crazy results and stuff, but it's more than that. It's it's it it is the um, it is the severing of a relationship, the most the most important relationship in in professional football, because even though it is big business and hard business, it is still an entertainment business and there is no point in providing entertainment unless there is a public to enjoy it. And even though that public are enjoying it to a degree um, through um, television broadcasts. It, it isn't, the, the, the sense of theatre that you have at a major sporting occasion is, is sadly lacking. And so therefore the spectacle um, is not the same. Whether there will be um, a knock-on effect to that relationship between football and its public remains to be seen. I think that, um, I think the you know, football at Premier League level in 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 a country like England has taken its public for granted for a long time. I think in terms, I, I hate people talking about brands and stuff, but in it, you know, in commercial terms, the brand loyalty to your football club is you know far stronger and deeper than it is to your favourite breakfast cereal or chocolate bar, and so you know, football has an kind of an emotional hold over it's the supporters of the particular club and it it does um it does tend to use that hold um for commercial ends and um you know maybe uh, that that the strength of that relationship is is being slowly diluted by the distance that that football fans feel from their team um at the moment um it it's evidenced itself in the outrage uh, over the um, the the, pe the pay per view games, um, over the project big picture, um, it you it, it it just seems as if one or two ideas are tapping into an undercurrent of dissatisfaction um, with the way the game is uh, among core supporters, and um, it's I think it's quite healthy that that voice is being raised and heard. Uh, hopefully it will make football think twice um, before it makes significant changes to um, the kind of landscape and structure of the game. Um, but um, it, it, it's, 
I, you know, you again, it's an argument I can see from both sides. I mean, the, the pay-per-view argument is it wouldn't be a smart thing for me to make the following statement on Twitter because there is so much kind of bubbling anger at being asked to pay fourteen ninety-five to watch your team play when you cannot go to see them in the flesh. But that match would not be televised but for pay-per-view. You wouldn't have an option to see that game on television but for this proposal that is being put forward. It is not what we had a month ago when all games were being provided under the same terms of your uh, subscription agreement with Sky or BT Sport, but they are commercial organisations who rather as with a furlough scheme or some emergency measure that was brought in as a result of the lockdown and then the restart, um, it was never going to be forever. It was never going to be a permanent arrangement. So the argument is actually only about the timing of when um, the, the original model was, um, uh, you know, w was resumed. Um, the original model is now being has now has now resumed, but with an option to buy the games that you wouldn't normally have seen. Um, now, <laughs> you know, I, 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 Sky and BT can't make a big fuss about it because they're the, you know, they're the um, uh, they're the villains in this in this particular drama. But you, you know, anybody with any understanding of how the football business works can see it from the point of view of the clubs and the broadcast providers. That's what they are. You know, they're commercial organisations and part of the way that they make the money is by charging you to watch the football you want to watch. Uh, well, <laughs> if you want to watch this game, you're going to have to pay for it. Um, and, and that, you know, that's the simple way. Now you could say it's a thin, thin end of the wedge and this is the way that they want to you know, football to be sold in future years. Fine, okay, I understand that argument too. And that's, a, but that is a slightly different debate to the fact that this um, emergency arrangement that was brought in had to come to an end at some time, and the broadcasters and the football clubs decided that that time is now. You know, that's business. If if you if you don't want to pay fourteen ninety five or cannot afford to pay fourteen ninety five, don't do it. Watch the highlights on match of the day. That's free in a couple of hours' time. Now again, going back to what we said ten minutes ago, if I tweeted all that, I would get absolute abuse. I, I would probably get campaigns for me to step down and, and and never commentate on football again. But it's easy to get righteous about something when you know, you're not the commercial organisation that's trying to, <laughs> trying to make a living and, and pay wages out of selling football to people, you know, either as a Premier League club or as a, a, a television company. Um, that those kind of conversations can't really be had. Um, I'm not saying that the big picture project is something that I wholeheartedly agreed with, but the clubs in the EFL, there are a lot of clubs in the EFL who wanted that to go through because they wanted the money now. They needed the money now. They didn't really care about the, the bigger picture and the future and, and the voting rights in the Premier League. They wanted the Premier League to, to donate some money to them in the emergency crisis that they are facing at the moment. And um, uh, I, again, it, it's, it's easy to sit in an, a, at a, a laptop with a thousand words to write for the Guardian and and you know decry these billionaire owners who uh, who want everything for themselves. But in in it you know in any business transaction, if you're going to give somebody some money, you you're going to ask for something back. And um, yeah, it, you could say that Liverpool and Manchester United or and their cohorts saw it as an opportunity to seize more power for themselves, but. You know, op opportunism is 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 part of business. It's it, it's what happens. I mean, amid all of the issues and problems um, that the pandemic has brought, economic problems as well as the health and mental health problems it's brought, amidst all of the economic problems that this pandemic has brought, it's created massive business opportunities for certain people. 
you know, if you're in, if you're in, um, uh, if you're in the business of creating protective masks, I'm sorry, you want it to go on for a little while longer, please. Um, you, you know, so there are people, st capitalism's still alive and well, there are people still making uh, money. We, we've just um, actually, our, our, we've got a leaky conservatory, which becomes apparent when the rain starts to come down. Mm -hmm. And we've just um, thought, well, we'll, ha we'll, we'll have a new conservatory because we're not going on holidays and things at the moment. We've got a little bit of spare cash. Um, I mean, the conservatory companies, yeah, well, we can maybe do it in about three years time because it, it's happening. You know, but there are people, there is a new economy and uh, people are adapting to it. And, and, you know, football and everything else has got to adapt to the new set of circumstances that, that we find ourselves in. And again, we've got to take our blinkers off, stop climbing onto high horses, stop scaling soapboxes, shouting loudly at anybody who's trying to come up with an idea to deal with this issue, because it might just be a good idea or some of it may be quite a good idea. And um, we need to... Uh, I mean, if anything comes out of this conversation, it is uh, I, the absolute need to staunchly defend the right of people to have a conversation um, without being decried. We've read a story this morning and it, it's a good reference point. I haven't sort of seen the whole detail of it about a, a head teacher who um, gave an address to an assembly about um, Black History Month and used the word Negro, which was a common usage until quite recently. And, you know, the, the, there are calls. I don't know how many, and because the story doesn't say how many, um, for her to step down because she said this word publicly, even though she said it in the context of it used to be called, uh, I, 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 you know, Negro history. I, I, and as, as a communicator, again, I I want to defend that person's just their right to freely discuss this and have this conversation. But you won't find me tweeting anything about that uh, at the moment because I didn't. I, I don't know enough about it to begin with. I'd have to find out more about it before and to form my own opinion. But I probably would share that opinion just with people close to me rather than uh, publicly because it's um, it's scary out there at the moment, and as I say, as future communicators, you've got to make it somehow make it a little less scary. On the topic, On the topic of adaptability, uh, Amazon Prime's new coverage of Premier League football has an option of coverage without commentary. <laughs> Is it something that worries you, and do you think it taps into a wider society of people being able to access what they want when they want? at the simple click of a button? I've, I've got uh, three sons in uh, mid to late 20s, and um, they're not around very much at the moment, partly because of the circumstances that they all live in London. But when they're here, um, and there's a, a Premier League game on live, they don't sit down in the lounge, thankfully, with the old man and, and watch it. They go to the pub, and they don't come back and talk about the commentary because they haven't heard a word of it. Um, you know, they, they've added their own commentary um, to the experience because they've watched it with mates and um, they've had a, an ongoing conversation during the course of it. I think that's wonderful. I think that's how football should be watched. Um, uh, it, I, as you know, I've already said that the um, changing face of the consumption of media and we as, as commentators, broadcasters generally, we've got to we've got to adapt to that. I do think that the um, television football model in this country that has been in existence really since 1992, the subscription model is under threat. Um, I think the audience are becoming smarter and um, more selective and would rather buy individual experiences, matches, UFC um, bouts, um, you know, whatever, WWE, whatever it is, um, you know that 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 they choose rather than subscribe for a month or a year to a, a particular um, provider. Um, I think um, 
I think now TV are quite successful at the moment. You can buy a you know Sky Sports Day Pass for a tenner to watch a couple of games if you happen to be in and that that Sunday you happen to have a few you know in, in the, back in the good old days when you had a few mates around and a few pizzas and stuff you know make a day of it and then another Sunday you might be doing something else you know you might be playing football so you don't buy it that Sunday you don't see the games you catch up with it on match of the day which still holds quite a healthy audience you know still sort of touching two and a half three million people regularly on a Saturday and Sunday night so there is a, and there's a catch-up you know I I can I can go onto a search engine and and watch a, a three and a half minute edit of any football match really played just about anywhere in the world. I've just watched. Um, I'm doing Barcelona on um, on Wednesday, so I've just watched the five and a half minute edit of the of, um, of the Clasico, and it's told me all I need to know really. Um, so yeah, different consumption, more selective consumption, and part of that selection will be, you know, what audio track you want people. I, I much prefer um, uh, restart football without fake crowd effects. When I'm if I make my choice when I'm watching, I just have the natural stadium sound. But then maybe because I've experienced that at first hand on on several occasions now, and I just prefer that. It, I don't. I think the fake crowd effects are quite funny actually because they tend to be out of sync with what we're watching. Um, so I'm not quite sure why you need that, but the majority of people, given that option, opt for the crowd effects. It's it's a matter of it's a matter of taste, and um, you know this won't be the first time that um, we had fan zone on Sky a few years ago as an alternative to the um, to the main commentary. Um, I've seen um, BBC offering the radio commentary on on a red button on live games that they've done. Um, it's it's just part of the I mean the technology enables um, media providers to offer more different experiences without um, without too much difficulty so why wouldn't they um, why wouldn't they do that but um, uh, I hope uh, that um, the mainstream um, consumption of uh, live football will always be with recognised commentators, be it one, two, three, or it seems like 32 at times. And finally, if you could revisit the Clive Tildesley, the Sabats and Bark on the first day of his new career as a commentator, what is one piece of professional advice that you'd give and one piece of life advice that you'd give to yourself? <laughs> um, I've I've been, uh, I've, I've recorded some already. Oh, have you? Okay. Yeah, so don't Sorry, worry. Sorry, I'm just doing yeah. some social media for him. You've done it. That's fine. <laughs> That's good. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, I've, I've been so lucky uh, to do the job that I always wanted to do um, at the level that I've managed to reach that I could only ever change detail. Um, if uh, if I could do it all over again, um, so I um, I think I would humbly sort of step back from um, trying to rewrite uh, any of it. Um, the the best most of the best advice that I think that I've received on um, broadcasting and the clue is in the word. I think I probably said this when I was down at the university. Um, you know, it, it is broad. It's not narrow casting. It is you're commentating to a broad audience and you should be inclusive and invite all of that audience in, particularly when you're fortunate enough to be um, communicating to 20 odd million people, which you can be at a World Cup. And um, most of that advice came from this guy, Reg Guttridge, who um, you won't find a great deal. You won't find any instruction from him uh, on this on the search engines on YouTube or anything, you, you'll, you'll hear his commentary and the lovely common touch that he had in his is uh, in his commentary. It was very digestible. Um, it was just like listening to a friend, really um, an informed friend talking about the, the bout that you were watching the championship contest that you were watching. Um, and that was very much his message to 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 broadcast to to um, 
I, I had to be careful when I was writing this in the book because he, he used to tell me to broadcast a white van man and it that kind of sort of sounds a little bit condescending and dismissive in a way, but it's not. It's anything but that because that that's exactly what Reg was not. Um, because in a way, he he was white van man. You know, he was from a a a, a you know a pretty um, well ordinary is not the right word, but but economically quite a humble background, and um, so he you know his his friends were manual workers and uh out of workers and um uh and that and you know they were the people that he conversed with in his life and his social life so they were the people that he tried to converse with when somebody put a microphone in his hand and that is i think a wonderful lesson not to broadcast to he, he used to chastise me for commentating to the england manager he's not listening <laughs> he's not watching <laughs> you know don't try and impress anybody with your knowledge don't try to commentate to the you know pithy guardian colonists who's about to pen 650 poison words about you you know don't try and impress him or her but just commentate to, to uh, the, the other one he used to say is your grandma watching right well commentate to her um and um and by by commentating to that person you 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 then embrace so many millions more around that person who who are watching with the same level of interest you're not you're not trying to commentate to football aficionados it's that's not what it's about it's um it is broadcasting so get to, to identify your audience and and broadcast to them um uh, serve them my work for rangers television is different from from my work for CBS, um, the, you know, they're the two broadcasters that I've worked for in the last few days. Talksport before that. Talksport is a national British audience. Um, tend to be football fans um, because they're taking the bother to listen to a particular match. It's not like you're just playing music or anything. It's fairly intense radio listening. So I think you can assume that there's a level of football interest there and therefore a level of football knowledge. Move on to the Wednesday CBS Sports, a US audience. So um, less in involvement, less knowledge. Um, I mean, you could argue both ways. You could argue that it's quite a niche thing. It's still in the States watching Champions League football. So maybe they have got an investment in the game. But you've got to try to assume there's probably a wider sports audience with a kind of um, curiosity about what this is. So explaining the Champions League and its level. I, I did um, Bayern Munich on Wednesday and I did a, a little intro where I related how difficult it is to defend this competition by relating to how rarely the Stanley Cup or uh, the Super Bowl or the Baseball World Series has been successfully defended. It's one thing to win it, but to win it again is is more difficult. So again, commentating to that audience and then on Sunday, I commentated essentially to an audience of Rangers fans. So even though I'm not a cheerleader for Rangers during the game, even though it's still editorially objective and I'll call a bad pass a bad pass, all of that audience want Rangers to win. <laughs> so so I, I, even though I've done a lot of um, background information on Livingston, um, I'm not really commentating from a, a neutral's point of view. I'm objective, but I'm not neutral. I mean, when Rangers score, it's it's a happy event because that's your audience. So you you communicate to that audience. So that would be my kind of professional advice. My life advice would probably now be um, relate to what we've already talked about: to listen, listen to other people, listen to other people's opinions and views you know when you've been on the planet for as long as i have you you probably feel there's a danger that you feel like you've seen it all i mean you'll know stubborn old people parents uncles aunties who you know you, you may even know somebody who's old enough to have lived through the war and and you know if you come out of a world war you you're entitled to uh, look down on little Luke and feel as if he's got no idea what you know what the world's really about. Um, and, and you know, experience is, 
I think really, really important, but it actually can condition us a little bit. So you, in order to use your experience and continue to add to your experience, even when you get into your 60s like me, you've got to keep your ears and eyes open. And you, you, and if you hear views that are contrary, contrary to your own, you've got to give them some consideration um, in order to keep your mind open to having your your views amended or or, or even um, wholly changed. And um, so, as uh, in in life, and and it is reflected in the work that we do. Um, it's very important to, to keep listening, keep um, trying to understand, keep asking questions, um, keep being brave enough when you can um, without stepping into the middle of a Twitter storm, asking questions, challenging and 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 keeping your mind open. That's that really is the most important thing. I I don't know whether um, I lost the England job with ITV because I'm in my 60s. Um, what I do know is that our four children who are 25 to 29, uh, 25 to 30 now, are amongst my four best friends in the world. And I can certainly have to relate to them as part of my job as a parent. And um, I would uh, take a major offence at any suggestion that because I'm 66 years of age, I cannot understand somebody in their twenties or what they're thinking or what they uh, what they believe, what's important to them. Because um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I make it my business to to do exactly that, and uh, and both in life and in in communication, it's very important not to leave anybody behind. Because you know, to go back to Reg, my grandma when she was watching the match counted one viewer just like the England manager if he happened to be watching that match. They were equally important in that audience. Um, my grandma probably needed a little bit more of my um, research and ability as a communicator to help her enjoy the game. And so in, in that sense, she was probably more important than the England manager. And that's what communication is all about, about reaching people and, and trying to enlighten them. And in order to do that, you've got to keep enlightening yourself. Remember the name, Clive Tilsley. <laughs> okay, Matty. Thank All you right. very much for joining me today. I know you've got a very busy schedule, so I very much appreciate it. All righty. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Sir. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Talking Bulls podcast. If you've enjoyed this content, be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes, on Spotify, or on SoundCloud. For more content such as this, be sure to head over to my YouTube channel. Luke Woodley Marshall. So that's Luke W O O D L E Y M A R S H A W L.